I'm Zach. I'm a musician, a former worship leader. I helped destroy Mars Hill Church. I'm not really sure what I believe anymore, and I'm okay with that. I'm Dave. I'm a Bible theology nerd, an occasional preacher, a movie buff. I'm wondering if we chartered a flight for Brett Kavanaugh, if he would come to our VCW hall, and if we had some Bud Light for him and all that. And I'm an evangelical. And I didn't come up with a joke. There's like a week until my kids have summer break. We are kind of mentally done here. But this is Veterans of Culture Wars. Veterans of Culture Wars is a podcast where we have conversations about evangelical Christianity. We welcome you to the podcast, whether you are a believer or not. And we are excited for this episode. Um, one of the things that is being discussed in the world of journalism right now, kind of ongoing and has, you know, has been for a little while, is the importance of having good religion reporters. And among the legacy media or mainstream media, there are certainly some good religion reporters, but obviously we have all heard about cuts to newsrooms and editorial staffs, and this affects reporters whose beat may be religion. So religion is obviously always an important topic that we want to talk about, but as we have been having discussions on this podcast about rising Christian nationalism, Religion is critically important to cover right now in the journalism arena, and it definitely helps to have a writer who really, really understands religion on a deep, deep level. So on our show today, we have one of the one of the very good religion reporters out there. He is a national reporter for Religion News Service and formerly wrote for Think Progress. He has been published in The Washington Post and the Atlantic and has been cited everywhere, you know, the New York Times, the New Yorker, places like that. He graduated from Presbyterian College and received a Master of Divinity. He has mastered the divine. He went to Harvard University where he got that degree. So very importantly, his uh, latest book, it's a couple years old, but it is still a really great read and we highly recommend it. Um, is American Prophets, The Religious Roots of Progressive Politics and the Ongoing Fight for the Soul of the Country. Welcome to the show, Jack Jenkins. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, at the top of the show, we uh, I mentioned that you were you attended Presbyterian College or PC, which is in <laughs> South Carolina. Um, is yeah. your background uh, with the Presbyterian faith or what type of faith background do you have as as you grew up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, first of all, uh, go Blue Hose, as is the mascot for Presbyterian <laughs> College. Uh, doesn't Ooh, make, it make a whole lot of sense. Blue Hose, H-O-S-E, as in like socks. A, um, a, <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah, it's uh, a fight are, in socks. We're the we're the we're the smallest division one school in the country with like 1200 1100 students. And so like whenever we end up playing like Ohio State for no apparent reason and getting demolished in the various different division one sports we play in, um, there's always like a little segment about like, wait, what is your mascot? Like, how did this? <laughs> Why is that? Um, raises some eyebrows, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but no, but part of the reason I went there, I, I grew up Presbyterian, um, the, you know, PCUSA, I, you know, okay. I, I grew up in, in small town, South Carolina, 
um, at a Presbyterian church. And then you know, PC is in South Carolina as well. Um, so I kind of grew up definitely in that tradition. So nice. My family is currently uh, PC USA. So up here in Seattle, uh-huh. but uh, the, I know the denomination can be quite diverse and probably is a little different in rural South South Carolina, I imagine. But, I mean, it's um, all it's all relative in rural South Carolina, right? Like we didn't yeah. we didn't I didn't grow up under um, using the term evangelical. There were Baptists and then there were everyone else. Like that was, that was just kind of the way <laughs> you understood it, right? I mean, you know, I, one of my pastors was a woman growing up. And um, and I remember, you know, my, my Baptist friends like just being confounded by that and me not knowing why they didn't have one. Like it was just like a weird like dynamic in small town South Carolina. So, yeah, for me growing up, it was we didn't use the word evangelical at all. It was it was charismatics and mainline. And I feel like I wasn't called a care a, a, a an evangelical until I took a poli sci class at Seattle Pacific. And uh, my professor would always refer to the class as you young evangelicals. And I'm like, all right, I guess I guess that's what I am. <laughs> uh, Fair enough. Let's let's talk a bit about uh, about your book, um, which has to do with this, the so-called religious left, the the progressive Christians and and, and other faiths and things. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, uh, Dave mentioned the name of the book, American Prophets, the Religious Roots of Progressive Politics and the ongoing fight for the soul of the country. So it sort of traces the modern history of the so-called religious left. You know, there are folks that would we would say are within that that don't like to use the name and, and all that, right. but we'll say religious left so we understand what we're talking about. Uh, we, we've had lots of guests on here talking about the religious right. Like we had Catherine Stewart, whose book, The Power Worshippers, clearly yeah. lays out the goals of the religious right, right there in the title of her book, Power. The religious right is primarily a movement seeking political power, and power is way more important to the leaders of the movement than religious beliefs. Reading your book, I felt like the opposite is true of the religious left, which is probably why they're less effective. As as you see it, what are the primary goals of the religious left? So, I mean, I feel like one of the things to keep in mind when we're talking about the religious left is that, you know, one of the things... I kind of argue is that the religious left is fundamentally different from the religious right on multiple levels, but one of them is just structural. Um, there's less homogeneity in the left in general, and that also includes um, the religious left. So there's more theological diversity, there's more racial diversity, um, what have you. And uh, because of that, I mean, it's part of this broader infrastructure that is the modern left that kind of at this point in American history operates as a coalition of coalitions, right? So whereas the religious right, broadly defined over the last few decades, has kind of been this entity and this series of institutions that have really tried to impact the Republican Party in particular and and American society as a whole, what the religious left often functions within the broader structure of the left, right? I mean, there's no analog to the religious right on the left at all. Like there's no singular entity or constituency um, that would that at this point in American history can be seen to have the same kind of power or apparatus or influence on the left. And so that's kind of what we're talking about when we're talking about the religious left is this group of people that sometimes are just a part part of other movements that are happening on the left, but sometimes are leading them. Um, And so, you know, the classic example from the 20th century, of course, was the civil rights movement. That's the one people often harken back to. But when I kind of was writing my book, I was saying, I was kind of interested in what had happened over the last 10 to 20 years 
um, where the religious sect had the biggest impact. And so what you often find is that um, the legacy of that civil rights movement is still very um, prominent in religious left circles, but that it is broader than just that. It is a um, if you if you talk about climate change, you're going to find uh, religious activists, whether they're Christian or um, Buddhist, or often more recently uh, indigenous spiritual traditions. You know, Standing Rock was an overtly um, religious and or spiritual, depending on what term you use, protest um, that that wasn't necessarily covered that way, but it was no less religious than a religious right gathering. You know, using those terms broadly. Similarly, um, the immigration reform movement and the immigrant rights movement, there's a deep undercurrent of religious um, element there. You know, the, 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 we, we talk about sanctuary cities that that emerged out of the sanctuary movement, which was an explicitly religious movement along the U.S.-Mexico border that took in um, refugees from Central America that then got uh, there was, a, you know, the new sanctuary movement ha happened just before Trump's rise, you know, that operated similarly taking in undocumented immigrants at risk of deportation and basically pushing the federal government until they until they stopped deporting some individuals. So I, I'd say that's a long-winded way of saying uh, there's actually a myriad of concerns that often mirror the broader um, goals of the left that are occupying within the religious left. That having been said, um, I, one thing I think is really interesting about the religious left is that because of their emphasis on activism, because this is a group that often... Um, represents a myriad of constituencies that don't have a ton of power on their own, right? That's why they're the coalition of coalitions. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, you'll see the religious left being a part of that, of those pieces that are pushing the left in a specific direction, you know, pushing them to take immigration reform more seriously, pushing them to take climate change more seriously. And sometimes even in places that are unexpected, I only make one mention to this in a book. And if I could go back and write another chapter, I might uh, write about now do this about how some of the earliest abortion rights activists were actually clergy in New York City and in Washington, mm -hmm. D.C. Um, and that's not the, that atypical of a story when you're looking at um, this sort of uh, development of the religious left. So. That's yeah, that's really fascinating because I I used to be politically conservative. I, you know, I drifted away for a while, as I've shared on the, the show before in 2016 uh, was the breaking point for reasons we've already discussed that are probably obvious at this point. But I think, you know, one of the things kind of coming out of the conservative movement that I think conservatives really get wrong about the left is there's there's a narrative on the right that the left is all these people that are godless and they're the same and they're marching in lockstep to this, you know, Marxist utopia. And that is just not the case, as I discovered, right? You know, people are all over the place. I mean, because I think the right thinks of the left as they think of themselves, mm -hmm. the, the right has, you know, the doctrines, people call it kind of the bounded set where you draw a line and you say, okay, who's in and who's out us against them. Um, you know, where are people standing with these lines that we're drawing? And it's not to say there aren't, you know, sacred cows on the left, although I think I found the left is more, you know, those lines are around uh, issues of dehumanizing people or issues of, um, you know, oppression or, or treating people horribly in society. Um, so that's that's a really interesting thing about the left. It's just the Grand Canyon of difference between, say, Joe Manchin and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who comes up in your book right. in the, right. the climate change chapter, both Catholics, but very, very yeah. different political philosophies here. You know, absolutely. Um, 
So that's a yeah, that's just a, a fundamental misreading, I think, that conservatives get of the left. Um, circling kind of a back around to just the premise of your book, I, I still think that most people in our society, when they think of progressives, they're probably thinking godless or someone who doesn't believe in God or isn't isn't spiritual, you know. And we definitely have an audience, you know. We have evangelicals, we have we have people who are agnostics and atheists. Mm -hmm. But um, to me, as an evangelical, this book was really encouraging to me because it, it is these um, people who faith is a really big deal. And then, like you said, they're trying to work with other people who they may not agree with theologically in order to advance causes that are going to help society. So I was really encouraged by this book and um, how, so people think of conservative and they think religious person, mm -hmm. how, how many people on the left would you say are people who are deeply religious or spiritual or that matters to them on a daily basis? Do you think? Well, so as, as a, a frame to answering your question, I think a couple of things are true at once. One of them, which is true is that the largest you know, there's a large the, when you break down the two parties, the um, Democratic Party has a significantly larger proportion of religiously unaffiliated voters than um, conservatives do. Um, although interesting, it is also growing in the Republican Party as well. Um, and I should also note that the religiously unaffiliated is actually a complicated category that is atheists and agnostics as well. But actually, the group that keeps growing the fastest is folks who just say they're none of the above. And some of those people, depending on which survey you're looking at, anywhere from a third to higher, actually like pray daily, right? So they're like, I'm not identifying with a specific religion, but they're actually doing more religious performance, uh, more religious practitioner um, things than you might find in you know people who are rank and file members of a religious tradition. And sometimes they are attending worship regularly, but just don't identify with a specific tradition. Sometimes they're conservative, um, they're conservative Christian or what might be defined as conservative Christian, but don't want to attach themselves to any specific labels there either. So I, I point that out to be like, it is true that there's a larger chunk of the religiously unaffiliated, which is blanketly assumed to be, you know, quote unquote, godless, which isn't necessarily true um, in the Democratic Party than the um, Republican Party. However, you're still going to find the majority of Democrats, depending on which poll you're looking at, but majority of Democrats are, oh, actually, majority of Democrats are definitely um, uh, expressing beliefs in a higher being or in some sort of concept that might be labeled as God. But what I think is really interesting is when you when you get down into the nitty gritty here, you do have these atheists and agnostics. You also have black Protestants who are some of the most church, one of the most church growing demographics in the country. Um, and it's, it's seen less attrition with the, you know, the, um, the like the, the quote unquote death of the mainline, but also infecting evangelicalism. Now, the, the, the winnowing win membership in those traditions, um, black Protestants have seen less of that. And I point that out because if you're a Democrat running for office, both of those constituencies are really important. So in, when you're campaigning, you're often campaigning to some of the most and least religious Americans at the same time. The, what's the real trick is that. Um, and one thing you often find expressed when you attend these sort of religious left events or or protests or you know rallies is that there's a lot of different religious traditions um, expressed at once in that area. And they there aren't that many uh, efforts to try to lump them together into like single buzzwords, right? So where you go to a religious right gathering, they will appeal to God and country and things like that, that 
the you know diver- the, the various people in the room, whether they're Catholic or members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints or evangelical, can all be like, "Yes, that's true." When you go to these religious left events, there's often a rotating band of speakers, right, that represent um, Muslims, um, Jewish Americans, various different forms of Christians, whether that's um, Black Protestants, White Mainliners, um, Catholics, um, Hispanic Protestants. All of these are often on stage, and then when they talk about when they appeal to God, they'll say something like, "You know, my um, in my tradition, I say X Y." and Z, this like specificity that you often don't find articulated in similar events um, on the right. So the, the the difference there is that there's less of an effort to try to um, amalgamize the various faith traditions into a singular faith tradition, rhetorically speaking, that you find on the right. So the majority of Democrats um, are expressing beliefs in, in God or a higher being, and, and many of them are actually deeply, profoundly religious, and it dictates their politics and policy, lest we forget there's only one active, everyday minister in the U.S. Senate, and that is um, Reverend Senator Raphael Warnock. They're, it's not a Republican, right? Um, and I think that, that that often goes unacknowledged. It's technically, I should note, that James Lankford does um, identify as a minister at times and has done like marital counseling and what have you. But Warnock is the only person who's actually, you know, shepherding in congregation on day to day. And he's a Democrat. And that's not really that surprising um, when you get into, uh, you know, when you really kind of uh, study these events. In fact, Warnock, you, you know, um, before he became a senator, was one of the people who was arrested at an event that might be likened as a religious left event at the Capitol while protesting um, in pursuit of progressive gains. So that that's it, it for me kind of exemplifies what we're talking about here, where Democrats are often very religious, just not in the ways that has been captured um, by the religious rights rhetoric, particularly, you know, the success of that rhetoric in the 90s um, in term, when we refer to values voters. That that what you say about the specificity of of the language used by those on the left when talking about their faith versus the more generalized way that it's often brought up on the right is really fascinating to me because because the right has seemed to be able to to own the space. But when I listen to what is often said, it is very generic. It is very like, like we need God back in schools. Okay. What, what do you mean? That's a title. <laughs> like which, <laughs> which God are we referring to? And I think part of that is, you know, their coalition, it's, it's, uh, it's Catholics, it's Protestants, it's, it's LDS folks. And yeah, they have, you know, LDS folks, you know, Protestants would say have very different understanding of God mm-hmm. than they do. LDS folks would say, no, we're pretty close to you. You know, you know, growing up, mm-hmm. you know, evangelical, I was told they were a cult, but for uh, political purposes, they're on the same team. And so we hear this sort of generalized uh, uh, language here. There's a, there's a, there's a few ways we can go with this. Um, so I'll bring up a couple and you can, you can pick which, which way you want to go. Um, one, you recently interviewed the QAnon shaman Jake Angeli, who maybe the 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 most visible symbol of the the January sixth insurrection. He famously led a prayer on the Senate floor when they were in there, and you know I remember watching that prayer, and it was it touched on elements of Christianity, mm-hmm. and it touched on a whole lot of other stuff. I you know I heard the recent. Uh, QAnon Anonymous podcast interviewing him like for an hour like that guy has wild beliefs that are all over the place and yet the first time he gets out of prison he shows up at a church and mm-hmm. evangelicals are ready to claim him as one of theirs because he went up there and said you know 
God stuff. <laughs> like his, he was speaking very generically. And when he did get specific, it was not Christian. Um, I find that fascinating. Um, and then on the other side, you speak, you talk a lot in the book about the 2008 Obama campaign and the precise way that he spoke about his faith absolutely blew my mind as as a as a liberal christian in 2008 you know i i remember when 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 he first spoke directly about faith and i remember like sending links to my parents who are very republican and and encouraging them to to check it out and and have an open mind um i i thought he was the most christian politician i had ever witnessed and and so that that's why it was it felt just like personally wild and i was hurt by by the massive successful i would say effort to uh paint him as first not a real christian because liberation theology isn't real christianity and then not a christian at all but actually a muslim <laughs> when his sincerity was just so obvious to me he spoke as someone who knows it and lives it can you so Two things here. If you and you can go into both if you want. If you want to talk about the impact of that campaign, maybe what 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 Obama's willingness to speak openly about his faith meant to you, um, and then just sort of this nature of the right to 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 glom on to figures like the QAnon shaman who have the smallest bit of connection to their beliefs. That okay, you're in the tent. We're we're good here. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd love to talk about both. Let's see if I can do both briefly. <laughs> with with Obama, you know, what was fascinating about his campaign is how, like, aggressively religious it was. The first yeah. words out of his mouth on his first event when he announced his candidacy were, like, an all glory and honor to God. That was, like, the, yeah. the beginning of the speech um, in Illinois when he launched his campaign. And it, uh, there were a couple of things happening there. One was... Obama, because of the way that he kind of situated himself as a candidate and as a political figure where he saw himself or at least definitely wanted to project the idea that he was a uniter, um, you kind of was like elevated what is often referred to as um, uh, civil religion to this like um, ascendant, like soaring oratory, right? So like the idea that civil religion was kind of this rhetoric that you've seen in presidential addresses for like roughly a century, he took that and then added his own rhetorical flourishes to it. What was interesting to your point earlier about like how they, you know, that he's not a real Christian is that like his part of his faith narrative is a conversion narrative, right? Like he, he like oh. went to a church and then like gave himself to Jesus. It's, it's a classic thing that you would find to be celebrated in a lot of evangelical circles historically, but was kind of dismissed in this context for reasons that you elucidated. Um, and and then throughout his presidency, he would mention God all the time. You know, like after the um, even even when he uh, after the shooting in, in Charleston, when he attended that event, he famously sang Amazing Grace. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, like his memoir after his presidency, the first one is A Promised Land. Like it's just, you know, um, and even um, uh, I forget that his second book um, was uh, the title the of Audacity it. of Hope. Yeah, is a reference to a sermon, right? Right. Um, and so it's just like religious reference after religious reference. So that's just how he set up his candidacy. In addition to that, what was fascinating is that his faith outreach apparatus was arguably one of the most robust 
um, faith outreach uh, efforts in his 2008 campaign, not only of any Democrat, but of any presidential candidate in recent memory. It was aggressive. And it and it not only kind of, um, you know, kind of appealed to base voters, particularly in the primary season when he was seeking black Protestant support um, in, in, part, in places like South Carolina, but there was also this, you know, tangential, a parallel effort to kind of appeal to, you know, peel off some evangelicals, particularly young evangelicals come the general election. And there's some evidence to see um, that suggests that he was successful in that venture. So that's actually like a unusually broad spectrum approach to faith outreach. And I think um, there was a lot of there were many pieces kind of written at the time about how like uh, Obama it seems to be very religious. There's the you know comparing him to a preacher, um, and yet there was still this like very vitriolic reaction on the right, both during his initial campaign and throughout his presidency, to kind of dis diminish or dismiss his faith. Um, which is why it's really not that surprising that when Joe Biden, his vice president, who's you know attends mass regularly. Um, and, uh, you know, walks around with a rosary on um, his arm um, and, you know, quotes scripture frequently during his speeches and talks about his Catholic faith, that um, there has been a concerted effort by conservatives to dismiss that as well, that this is, you know, that, that there's there's not a whole lot of seeding of ground, no matter how religious um, a Democrat um, is that, you know, it's not like the Republican Party or more accurately specific conservative Christian activists are going to suddenly embrace that person as a person of faith. Um, and that kind of leads into the second point. You know, you talk about Jake Angeli. As you said, uh, you know, it's difficult to convey um, to your listeners how uh, fascinating his spiritual and religious um, beliefs are and how they intersect with, you know, what some scholars describe as new age, how um, his involvement with, with what are widely considered you know, a variety of different kinds of conspiracy theories, including QAnon and ones that predated QAnon by quite some time, um, is what the, the conflation of that and the new age is what is often kind of described as conspirituality by some people. And he didn't really hide that. I mean, Jake has been pretty uh, you know open about his beliefs when you talk to him um, for quite some time. Oh, yeah. Uh, but what, but to your point, what was fascinating is that when he gave that prayer on the Synodias on January 6th, it was it was it was, you know, the Christian God that he appealed to so much so um, that uh, one of the other people in that room um, uh, who's also been, you know, uh, who, who's also been uh, charged with crimes for January 6th. Um, he did an interview like later that night or like the next day after the insurrection with um, an outlet where he mentioned that prayer and uh, and talked about the prayer and the appeal to heaven flags that flew that day as mm. the the I forget the exact words like the epitome of the movement or the pinnacle of the movement. And so he, as a traditional evangelical Christian, saw found resonance in that space. Um, which is why it was so fascinating when Jake Angeli was invited um, to. Although I should note, this is actually something that only gets a little mentioned in my article. So technically, I know you're say. <laughs> yeah, technically, like the church is is very aggressively trying to convey that they, they did not host this event. They just rent property on the same space where it was hosted. Um, but the so that church wants to just has is aggressively distanced itself from the event. That having been said, before Jake walked up to the um, the podium to speak. 
uh, an individual got up there and said, you know, we need to we need to take this moment to honor God and blew a shofar, um, which in conservative Christian circles that are kind of in this particularly right wing vein that often intersects with QAnon, um, use those a lot. That's why we saw them all over the place in the lead up yep. to January 6th and on January 6th, which, you know, which was more, you know, um, evoking a specific Christian under a conservative Christian understanding of God. And then Jake gets up there and starts, you know, talking about God and even Jesus. But then when he mentions Buddhism, everyone got really quiet and he even kind of acknowledged that awkwardness. Yeah. And um, somebody like, that's not our God. <laughs> yeah. Like that. It's like yeah. not our savior. And yeah. And so, I mean, I, I, it's curious whether they'll continue to embrace Jake now that he's kind of leaning back into his you know, his beliefs that still retain a lot of he says he still supports Trump. That's what he told me. Um, and he still like agrees with like the broad elements of QAnon, um, although he like has some has some nitpicks about it and thinks it's been infiltrated now. But will will the right even bother to still embrace him or will they just move on to someone else who can kind of they can they can is if there is someone who is successful or who in, embodies this sort of ideal that they want for a Christian nation? Um, you know, why would they bother with Jake Angeli anymore when they can you know put somebody else onto that podium? And well, I, I have I have seen Sean Foyt referred to recently as the ramen shaman, um, <laughs> no, noting his his distinctive hairstyle. Uh, which may involve a a a a, a comb over. Uh, just saying. Uh, so you know, maybe we'll see a a a QAnon shaman, Brahmin shaman team up. Uh, coming up. Uh, <laughs> we'll we'll see. We'll see. I, I uh, doubt it. I I think. Yeah, I think the QAnon shamans it just too outside of the the theological beliefs um, of of the right. But we'll see. We'll see. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I could talk yeah, about that I for was... hours, and I'll, uh, but I'll spare your podcast. I, I, he's, <laughs> he's a, he is a fascinating, fascinating character, and I think it is not good for his mental health to continue to 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 give him visibility, probably. Um, but uh, we'll see what happens with him. Uh, Dave, yeah. I think you you were heading to the, toward the question. Yeah, I, I think so. Okay. Um, yeah, I was I was one of the evangelicals that voted for Barack Obama in 2008 and being still fairly conservative. And I think one of the reasons was I still think that is the most inspiring presidential campaign I have seen in my life. And I was born in 1980, um, the 2008 Barack Obama campaign. Um, but, you know, my, my drift away from conservatism was, you know, my opposition to the Iraq war and the torture programs. And so I voted for Obama in the hopes that those things would end, you know, and there were some, obviously some disappointments in, in that area of his, of his mm -hmm. presidency. But, um, but yeah, I think there, there was a, a slight win over of perhaps some of the conservative evangelicals in, in 2008. Another area in your book that you talk about kind of building on talking about president Obama is the affordable care act passing and the different characters um, that you're good at storytelling, just in the book, telling the stories of these different personalities who aren't as well known, and then how their their faith got the inspired them to do these these big things. And, you know, related to healthcare, it, it still is amazing to me that, at least in my opinion, there is not any viable plan to increase citizens access to healthcare on the right wing. There just isn't. And if we think about our faith as 
you know, looking out for the poor, looking out for the needy, um, the, the sheep and the goats parable and all of that. It seems like healthcare, having access to healthcare and people being able to be treated for whatever is kind of, you know, in the center of what we would need to do in this country to have that happen. And so the Affordable Care Act by no means is a universal health care plan. And I think, you know, that's something like 20 million people got health care because of President Obama, the Congress, and also uh, this personality sister, Carol Keenhan, that you talk about in your book. Carol Keenhan, um, yeah. Keenhan, yeah. So in inspired to put this important piece of legislation through. And can you talk about Sister Carol? I, I'm sure most people don't remember her or probably aren't familiar and how she was instrumental just as this nun to to make calls and get help get this bill passed. Yeah, I think you know, that the, one of the reasons I use that opening chapter to kind of talk about the Affordable Care Act is because um, the, telling stories about the religious left, you're often talking about several different organizations and people that have this one moment of effectiveness, right? So like when uh, the book is meant to kind of trace where these movements have become most influential and impactful, right? And what was more impactful than passing one of the most, um, uh, you know, lionized pieces of liberal um, legislation of the last century, right? The Affordable Care Act. Um, it's also been deeply criticized, but it, you know, it's seen as a success of that movement. It is seen as the biggest success kind of in healthcare, um, liberal leaning healthcare legislation. So what's fascinating about that moment is that it was Barack Obama who gave credit to nuns for the passage of that bill. He said it wouldn't have passed without them. And what he was talking about was a couple of different nuns, but primarily who you mentioned, Cecil Carroll Keen, who is the head of the Catholic Health Association at the time. And she's a nun. And like many nuns, she also has like all these degrees and all this different variety of experience in addition to, um, you know, being a, a, as the term goes, women religious. Um, and she was also just kind of this like healthcare um, expert that was understood to be as such across the industry. And so er, from the early days of the, um, of the democratic campaigns and the primaries in 2008, you know, she was kind of seen as a key figure to impress as it were. And, and she was actually unimpressed with Obama's early, um, entry into the healthcare conversation. He basically, it was, I think the criticism was that he didn't have anything to say in the first, you know, um, debate as it were, uh, about healthcare as a topic. But over the course of his campaign, as he got, as he developed more and he started kind of a developed plan, which interestingly, he appealed to a plan that was the last time Republicans really were looking at robust healthcare programs, which is, you know, one that Mitt Romney instituted in Massachusetts and um, Obamacare, as it were, is actually built on the scaffolding of what was then a conservative argument um, for how healthcare access should work. But um, over the course of that primary season, uh, he got closer and closer to Sister Carroll. And then by the time he became president, he was like, I, he clearly prioritized passing a health care bill. Um, I mean, I, I know there was some reporting at one point that, that um, suggested that he had told um, his advisors that he was willing to be a one term president so long as he still passed the Affordable Care Act. So uh, because of that, you know, he put all of his, you know, uh, as much as he was willing, as uh, much as we saw him throughout his presidency, put his political um, clout on the line to try to get it passed. Well, we got close to the end and the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops came out against the Affordable Care Act. This is leading up to the key House vote on this legislation. And um, 
and throughout this process, Sister Carol had just been involved in the drafting of the Affordable Care Act. She had been at meetings at the White House and in D.C. She had just been a part of this conversation. So after the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops kind of came out against it, she has this internal trade publication um, at the Catholic Health Association. And she wrote what, you know, when she was, when she talked to me about it, she felt like she was writing something obvious, that she was that she supported this piece of legislation, that she had been involved or at least advising those um, who were drafting it um, throughout. And but she got a call from the White House right after that saying, oh, wow, like you've endorsed this. And she was like, yeah, of course I did. And that got um, caught that caught fire with you know some of their press people. But equally as important, it caught fire with a bunch of other nuns, particularly um, the folks over at you know an organization called Network, which at the time was run by a sister, Simone Campbell, who was also a nun. Um, and she helped uh, organize this group of um, women religious from across the country to do a sign-on letter saying that they, too, supported the Affordable Care Act. This was really important because there were a lot of particularly moderate Catholic Democrats who were concerned about whether or not they could support the Affordable Care Act because it might make them look bad in their various different districts if they were going against the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. But fun fact, uh, nuns poll better than bishops do, and uh, the American public <laughs> tends to like um, have a greater appreciation for nuns in terms of you know popularity and uh, and uh, likability than they do U.S. bishops. So when the nuns came out for it, a lot of these no Catholic Democrats um, thought that they they had they you know they had enough cover to vote this way. And, and I kind of mentioned this note in the introduction to the book that Sister Carol Key and meanwhile was so dedicated to this that you know she was at the Vatican um, you know in the in the in the final hours before or in the final days or final hours before the House vote and was actively making calls to lawmakers right up until the end. Um, well, having drinks apparently with John Podesta, who you know was a presidential <laughs> advisor to Clinton, Obama, and of course um, Hillary Clinton trafficked children. Yeah. Um, oh. uh, engaged in satanic rituals. We all know John Podesta, right? Uh, <laughs> so, uh, in the non-existent Comet Pizza. That's <laughs> alternate universe, yes. Uh, well, Jackson, do you know he been to Comet Pizza? <laughs> it's, I don't, this, oh man. Okay. This, I hear it's a great place. Sorry, I mean, it's, if we go down the QAnon road, there's. <laughs> I am, there's like, I am so a fan of stuff. any businesses started by punks, and, and Comet Pizza <laughs> is one of them, as, as, as I understand. Uh, you're in the Seattle area. I know that there are paintings on the wall there by Olympia musician Arrington Dedini, so of old time religion, K records, good stuff. Um, so if I go out to DC one of these days, I probably will go to Comet Pizza. Well, I'll back it up a little. I got a quote from your book, so I'll go back to theirs. Um, in talking about some um, progressive evangelical events and things and and the sorts of people that that show up and are engaged and involved in this, one of the events you, you talk about in the book is the Red Letter Revival. Um, it was a progressive Christian event in Virginia in 2018. There was apparently a lot of buildup to it, but when it came to the actual event, you wrote, quote, Despite the religious zeal, the gathering garnered a relatively small crowd of 300 to 350 people, a tangible reminder of the uphill battle progressive evangelicals face in their effort to crack the armor of loyalty created by the religious right. Indeed, 
If the religious right's power is measured in electoral might, it's still unclear what, if any, impact red-letter Christians and other progressive evangelicals have had thus far. Um, Shane Claiborne is one of the main folks with red-letter Christians. Um, we've we had him on the show early on uh, to talk about gun violence. And I didn't really realize at the time that he was so cagey about his beliefs regarding LGBTQ people. Uh, I These days, I have a pretty hard time thinking of anyone as being a progressive Christian if their theology isn't LGBTQ affirming. And I suspect a growing percentage of people would agree with that. Uh, do you think that the meaning of progressive evangelical or religious left has changed much in the last few years? And do you think this sort of purity test mindset is by nature one of the religious left's biggest barriers to effectiveness? So a couple of things in there. Um, to your first question, I think it it changes all the time. I think uh, political movements, particularly when you have a group of people negotiating that at all um, at different times, often you know, alter. Um, Evan checked in with Shane recently about his most recent views regarding those things. But I mean, that was a significant sticking point for him um, among a variety of both progressive evangelicals and progressives in general um, for quite some time there. There's also um, increasing disputes over Israel-Palestine and what that means um, within progressivism in general and in the religious left as well. Although, interestingly, the religious left is often seen uh, operated as kind of a moderator of those debates within the broader left, which has been fascinating to watch. Um, but so, yeah, I do think there's a lot of, you know, what cause is shifting. And some of those causes, I mean, some of the, the causes are shifted by the left internally, by what they value. But sometimes those causes are shifted by the right. I mean, I think one of the interesting things that's happened in the last six months is that um, the far right in the, in the United States and then, the you know, the right wing more broadly and then conservatism and now just the Republican Party has specifically um, uh, targeted uh, trans equality movements as something to push back on and often tying those to schools. Um, and so that has centered that debate among progressives as well. Right. So there's um, so there's like this desire among progressives to kind of push back against those efforts. And I think you know, one of the things that um, gets a little play in my book, but uh, I, I see all the time is that there actually is this sort of call and response that happens between um, the religious right and the religious left that isn't it's very rare that they actually are talking to each other directly that that mm -hmm. is that is um that very rarely happens when they actually dialogue or are debating but they are absolutely um either overtly or implicitly refuting each other throughout this time um, throughout their political battles and so i do think um certainly you know the definition of progressive and liberal and left has shifted just in the past you know five years it's actually one of the things i acknowledge in the opening of my book that i use the term religious left broadly um because some people who we might categorize as religious left don't use that term some people mm -hmm. who might be categorized as the far left think that only i have argued for, to me that left has a specific connotation that often is more closer to democratic socialism than it would be kind of more moderate democrats and they shouldn't be considered a part of the left and then you know you talk to somebody in the republican party or on the far right they think anybody they think mitch mcconnell is a crazy leftist so like the definitions get fuzzy <laughs> um when you're when you're talking about political terms but i do think in terms of a, a movement um there hasn't been a ton of um change in like say the last year year and a half but i do think there has been movement on that space and i should note one of the interesting things that happened when trump came to power 
um, is that I think one of the the miscalculations of Trumpism is that it in precisely what made it a strong movement on the right is also what made it feel like to activists I spoke with an existential threat to such a broad swath of the American left that they were able to operate in lockstep and actually kind of overlook a lot of um, divisions and internal fights that they had been having um, for the last you know eight years under Obama. Schisms and fissures that I had seen start to rift the left evaporated over the course of like a week and a half um, after Trump. Was oh, alive. sure. Like the, 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 yeah. the Democrats as a whole were not like like head over heels in love with with Biden. But we sure turned out to to get rid of Trump, <laughs> like yeah. like everybody could agree on that. Yeah. Um. Which, according to your book, um, he wouldn't have even been an issue if you had simply taken that job with the Clinton campaign, Jack. <laughs> um, so now Such is your opportunity to apologize, uh, or if you'd like to explain <laughs> what I just said, uh, feel free. But yeah. from what I understand, Trump would not have been president if you had simply worked for him. No, no, that is not the claim I make. I, I, I include this disclosure in the book in this giant <laughs> parenthetical where like, for a variety of reasons, like I got a call about whether or not I wanted to work in the faith um, uh, office for the Clinton campaign. And that did not that is not what happened and also my attempts to spin that offer into an interview with hillary clinton were wildly unsuccessful um I'm still still frustrated much by like that. her campaign um <laughs> and so so yeah no that's that's you can find there's it was it was a weird moment as a journalist i will tell you to like have have that call and then figure out how to respond so all right um you tweeted something uh what was this 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 was like three days ago. Well, June 18th, 2023 for when this interview comes out, because okay. uh, this sounded kind of ominous. So I wanted to ask you about this, although maybe you're working on a piece, so feel free to <laughs> not share a lot. But uh, you tweeted, quote, you know, I've had the opportunity to travel quite a bit for work so far this year, both coasts, regions in between, bastions of liberalism and conservatism, etc. Although technically always true, I can say with special emphasis that our country has uh, a lot going on, unquote. I, uh, I just wanted to ask you about that kind of ominous sounding tweet and just uh, some, some of your general observations, if you would like to share, of liberalism and conservatism that you see especially you know around with churches or, or different groups that you have interviewed or interacted with for sure and i mean the, the subtext of that tweet is that you know i've been doing a lot of um travel reporting this year which is fun i don't always get to do that and so you know i was in idaho and um in eastern washington earlier this year i was in um, arizona a little bit later i just was in orlando last week um, and you know, I'm and I'm also just up and down the East Coast for a variety of reasons. Um, and like as mentioned, I was just in Seattle, Washington recently as well. And and you start first of all, it's fascinating to me how often um you see that yeah, we have such a huge country with so many people in it living in different like living in different ways, and yet. The, in some ways, it becomes more astounding how powerful certain talking points and how powerful certain political movements have become, that they can just show up in common parlance with a rap, with an average person, whether you're talking to them in a diner in Phoenix or, you know, in a ranch um, in Texas or, you know, outside of Disney World in Orlando. Like, you know, you can you can hear the the impact of these various different political movements. I mean, I think 
the reporter's notebook stuff that I can share is just that, you know, I, I think there has been a really interesting reaction to the pandemic and the 2020 election. Um, those two forces have, particularly on the right, resulted in a really fascinating, um, arguably realignment of how the right sees itself. Um, and 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 what it prioritizes moving forward. Uh, I, as a subtext, the subtext, there's a uh, religion scholar, Ruth Bronstein, who wrote this fantastic paper kind of that details um, uh, backlash theory with regards to religion. She makes several different arguments in the in the paper, but among them is this idea that um, the rise of the religious right, as time has gone on, there's been an increasing purification process where you know moderate voices, however defined, and that's differently defined depending on what year you're in, have been persistently cleaved from the herd throughout, is her argument. And she also argued that as that group has gotten smaller and smaller, that um, it is kind of calcified into a space where there are less moderate voices to check um, embrace of an of extremism. So while the overall active group here is smaller, the uh, their effect can be more powerful and with with uh, and often can delve into extremism. And so what's been fascinating is you know while I'm, when I'm driving around the country and flying around the country, it's hearing you know how um, you know almost apocalyptic many Americans feel this moment is. Uh, the number of people. Who feel that you know we are we are either literally in the end times, uh, you know, eschatologically, theologically, or that our country is on the brink of collapse with an urgency that I haven't felt, um, haven't seen in some time, um, is not small, and that's particularly well, well represented on the right. And I've been tracking Christian nationalism in particular in various different parts of the country, so you know that's often how that's expressed, um, but. You know, but then in addition to that, there's like all these different layers of these different groups competing with each other for what particular kind of Christian nationalism they want to express. And then on the left, you have these various different organizations trying to figure out how to counter this, and which is often more difficult when Democrats are in power um, because there's less urgency in the same way there was during the Trump era. And so all of these different political movements are just moving past each other all at the same time. And there's this reorganization um, in spaces where in terms of where people even live, right? Like, you know, mm -hmm. when I wrote about I, um, Idaho, I mean, one of the yeah. fascinating things to about that story is like one in four Idahoans didn't live there 10 years ago, right? And that's both people moving in and people moving out. And so that changes the political makeup of those states, these you know red states. And in the aftermath of um, overturning a Roe v. Wade, you know, what that activism is going to look like here moving forward. It's just, you know, people were pushing back um, against state level abortion bans while also pushing abortion bans. We're seeing, you know, legislation in Texas to put the Ten Commandments on the wall and like similar overtures being introduced in other states. It's just a lot of different sub movements at once that I think you can trace back to that pandemic and 2020 election catalyst. But it's just the permutations seem endless and it's a lot to keep track of. So that's where the uh, a lot comes from. I, I was actually listening to a very conservative talk radio host and podcaster today referring to the vaccine as the poison jab, quote unquote. So there's there's a lot of that out there. And and real quick, uh, Zach, before you go, um, even to your point of the right having purity tests and and the amount of the right shrinking 
and there's a calcification of like what's going on at the right. I think a, a huge example of, you know, booting out quote unquote moderate voices, however you define that, is David French, hmm. who David French is like, he is. So you grew up PCUSA, I'm PCUSA. David French is in the conservative wing of the Presbyterian Church, PCA, right. out in Tennessee. If David French were on this podcast, we could probably ask him specifically about policy issues on anything, and he would be very conservative. He's a good, I think he's a, a debater in good faith. I think he's probably a nice person, but he's a very conservative person. But even he is a Marxist now in some quarters because he has challenged Trump and, and didn't vote for Trump and didn't support Trump and doesn't like this mega stuff. So anyway, as an example of what you said yeah. of booting people out of the he, camp, so to speak, he, there was like, a, if I recall correctly, and people can fact check me on this, there was like an effort to draft him for Republican president back in the day. <laughs> and now like yeah. there's some of those people who might've been cheerleaders for him five years ago, you know, just drag him through the mud, um, you know, mm -hmm. on Twitter and what have you. Yeah. I think part of that calcification and and getting rid of moderate voices and stuff has has made it difficult uh, to tell how much power there actually is in these movements and ideas versus just how loud the voices are uh, in between elections. When we have elections, mm -hmm. we find out how effective uh, the ideas are, how how far they've seeped into to the the mindset of, of regular folks. Um, but you you mentioned Idaho. We've had Brad Onishi on here talking about the American Redoubt, uh, mm -hmm. the you know the 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 term for that movement of of folks going to Idaho trying to build a theocracy. You know they have larger goals like annexing Eastern Washington and Eastern Oregon. Right. Um, in the last month, my wife's entire family moved to Idaho. And I found out the last pastor I had at a Nazarene church uh, is going to be moving there as well. Um, it's weird, man. And, and I should note, like, the redoubt was, like, set up the context. But what you're talking about is this more recent deluge in there, right? Yeah. And, like, that's, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, that's where I'm going with this. So, you know, they have big goals, which didn't really seem attainable but i i feel like the movement's picking up a lot of steam not slowing down what do you see happening there and has your opinion on the attainability of some of their goals changed so I, a few different things at once right like when i was over there that was what was fascinating to me is there was this re american redoubt like subtext right but then in the subtext was was overblown by uh was was overrun by this more recent immigration into Idaho particularly north Idaho but really the whole state of people often coming from you know blue coastal states particularly Washington Oregon and particularly California what was interesting is that the people coming in who are coming for political reasons as opposed to it's just too expensive to live in the bay area and they just want to like have more space and you know not have to um spend as much money um, the folks who were kind of more political, um, you know, internal immigration into that state, they uh, they are often zealous in a way that is it is diff distinct from Idahoans and conservative Idahoans before that. I, as one um, person kind of talked to me about, you know, Idaho is known for its kind of live and let live culture. It's this brand of kind of libertarianism, conservatism, um, kind of an extreme version of that. But that was kind of it's like what it was known for. But a lot of these people who are kind of moving in are showing up 
at um, these like uh, school board meetings or county council meetings and saying openly that they just moved there in the last year or two or like two weeks before, but they don't want to have Idaho turn into California or something like that. And that and they feel very uh, they they clearly seem interested in the political project and being present and voting and activists in a way that wasn't necessarily true of the folks who were, you know, the kind of Idahoans who were there before them, kind of that more live and let live conservatism. They were going to vote and show up on election day and express their views, but weren't necessarily, you know, activist minded in the way that we're finding um, in a lot of these cities. And of course, the flashpoint, you know, last year was one of the big interesting points when there was that, you know, pride parade where you had extremists show up um, and you know, Patriot like, Front or something with the, the yeah. Paul. Yeah, they, they, they all got, got arrested. Yeah. Um, but, you know, what I think is interesting about that, what what changes in Idaho in that context is with this new crop of people, um, not all of that one in four new Idahoans are are the kinds of people I'm talking about. But as more and more of them increase, that changes what they can get passed in the state. Similarly, if you have, you know, local elected officials who are getting primaried by more conservative um, voices, then then, of course, you're you're again limiting the number of um, potential moderate voices in the state legislature as well. So the end result is um, is a is a state that can lean even further right than it already was. And we're talking about Idaho, which isn't known as a bastion of you know democratic support. And so I think it's it, Idaho is in some ways unique in terms of you know what how it had been set up and the culture that was already there and its history um, with elements of extremism. But I don't think it's we, we already know that it's not the only place where similar things have happened. We've seen similar things happen at a local level in places like Michigan, where towns have kind of like where this resurgence of activists far right, often um, you know Christ, uh, people who affiliate with forms of Christian nationalism, kind of take over state um, government and are encouraging people to run for school board. So whether that happens in just red states or actually in some blue states in various towns as well, I think that that is absolutely a push that we are seeing at this point, where in Idaho in particular, that's where I saw it you know, most clearly, that's kind of what I wanted to go out there. Um, but I, I, I'm seeing similar movements all across the country. Um, with varying levels of success, I should add, um, like a lot of these stories are that this isn't working out very well. Either they don't get elected or they get elected and it, it turns out governing is hard. Um, and, you know, activists who with no um, governmental background can sometimes struggle to to govern. But it's certainly a thing I think we should watch between now and 2024. I'd imagine there's, there's a lot of people moving there from cities in California that find out, oh, if, if you have an entirely white culture, like. You don't have any good food. <laughs> like, you know, like I, I, all I have is like Applebee's and holes oh for buying clothes. Like if there's no immigrant population to like start up those traditional smaller businesses and things, just the culture of a of, of the area just sounds awful to me. But you've you've been there. I've stated to my in-laws that we will not be visiting. Um <laughs> We may end up sort of being being forced into doing it at some point. I don't know, but it freaks me out. Um, <laughs> so let's go to something else scary. Um, <laughs> you mentioned uh, Joe Biden wears his his Catholic faith on his sleeve uh, or the beads on his sleeve, whatever. Um, and and yet the right wing is 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 still very interested in making him seem like not a real catholic because i don't know he supports abortion rights or something 
Um, at the same time, you know, they they uh, are are amplifying and and putting up in uh, uh, lifting up the candidacy of Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis, much like Trump before him, but more quietly so, um, doesn't really seem to have any specific beliefs or, or hasn't really gone on the record saying much about what he actually believes. We know he's gone to church. You know, Trump went to church, but he asked Trump a question about the Bible and he can't really answer it. Um, Ron DeSantis is, is, a, is a curious fellow. I mean... The guy got married at Disney World and now is fighting a war against Disney. So he, he presents himself as this anti-woke, crusading Christian culture warrior. But what do we actually know about the guy's faith and beliefs? So this is so you mentioned like we know he goes to church. So that's actually a point of inquiry. He <laughs> has the been to church. Uh, <laughs> the uh, because we um, I, there was a, a great Associated Press um, article by Tiffany Stanley um, uh, recently that kind of dug into the ambiguity. And there's a similar piece by uh, Michael Laughlin, and I'm forgetting the other byline at America Magazine, kind of discussing there's like this weird ambiguity around the Catholic faith of Ron DeSantis. Um, and w even more peculiar to me was, um, so he, he put out that ad at the tail end of last year and heading into the 2022 midterms, it was like when God chose a fighter, um, and it was kind of framing, it was like this fascinating ad that like had a voiceover that made it sound like it was recorded 50 years ago, but it, it was actually entirely new speech that was recorded just for the ad. Um, that didn't he, include the full armor of God language that he likes to use, did it? I don't no, think that but that included that. But that's another big uh, uh, Christian element to his 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 persona these days. He does it all the time. Like he yeah. uses that that term all the time. And but he doesn't go, you know, super deep into his theology. Which, to be fair, not all politicians do. But when you're framing yourself as like God chose a fighter, it's an interesting, <laughs> uh, it's an interesting omission. Now, I'll say what was fascinating to me. It was last week where he kind of did his first faith interview as a presidential candidate, and he, and as a Catholic, he did not do it with like say a conservative Catholic outlet, outlet like EWTN. Um, which is like this very prominent conservative Catholic network um, that where, you know, one of their prominent hosts also moonlight, moonlights as a Fox News host. He didn't do that. He did it with Christian Broadcasting Network and an evangelical network, mm -hmm. um, and which was fascinating to me. And even more peculiar was that when he was asked about his Catholic faith by the interviewers, this long interview, um, he was almost I, I I hesitate to say this, but it sounded almost dismissive of some of the aspects of the Catholic faith that you can pull up the exact quote and check me on this. But he kind of referred to the traditions of Catholicism as like neat, I believe, was the word he used. And um, but then stressed that it was really important to have a relationship with God. This is more reminiscent of evangelicalism than it is rank and file Catholicism. And that's an interesting pivot to me about, you know, who he's seeing as a core constituency, but also how he wants to frame himself. Meanwhile, while that interview is dropping, I'm at or in Orlando at the bishops conference where there was vocal criticism of his participation in, um, you know, flying migrants from the U.S.-Mexico border to other states such as California. Um, one bishop 
compared Ron DeSantis to a human trafficker to me um, because of that. And um, and said that they have to train their workers along the border, these Catholic workers now to like warn immigrants of like potentially people coming and convincing them to go places that are being sent by, you know, the governors of Texas and Florida. Um, so there's actually like a weird tension that may be building between uh, DeSantis and the Bishop's Conference, particularly around the issue of immigration. But at the end of the day, to answer your ultimate question, there there remains a lot of ambiguity about how Ron DeSantis envisions his own faith. Now, that Christian Broadcasting Network um, interview, he does, you know, details some of his favorite Bibles passages, some parts of his faith that he find important, how it was important in his life. But that is, quite frankly, the most robust dialogue we've seen um, from him about religion in general and his faith in particular. And um, and it and for me, what was fascinating was how absent, um, you know, robust discussion of his Catholic faith was in that context. And so it'll be interesting to see how that develops over the course of the campaign, whether that if he goes and does an EWTN interview later, like Trump did, Trump used to bounce between the two networks, um, or if he articulates something different along the campaign trail. But a lot of reporters like myself are actually still trying to answer the question that you just asked. Um, and we're all talking to each other about it all the time. It just it <laughs> continually frustrates me. Like I said, you know, we got Obama speaking eloquently, constantly about it. We have O'Biden. Uh, O'Biden? O'Biden. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is the Irish heritage. There is the Irish heritage, like going to mass all the time, speaking specifically about the tough times in his life where leaning on his faith has been so important to him, like engaging in, in the rituals and, and, and all that. And then they just get totally dismissed and and the pillars of the faith are trump and now desantis guys that can barely even communicate the most basic things about why faith matters and what place it has in their life uh but because they are republicans that is just uh uh, uh it, it just means christian to so many people which to go back to the very beginning of so much of the things we were talking about in this discussion that's an increasing thing that we're seeing. The, the whole idea of, of the religiosity of folks on the right, um, I imagine there's a large schism that is widening between the polls showing uh, regular church attendance versus uh, self-described self Christians, as we have seen that the, the conflation of Christian nationalism and evangelicalism politically with Christianity as as these are all one and the same thing has led to more and more people that are politically conservative self-identifying as Christian or evangelical um despite not going to church not being engaged in any sort of faith practice or community yeah I I it, this has been a fascinating phenomenon um to track over the course of the Trump era and post where to your point, Christian nationalism was kind of this uniting force where, um, as it's often described, it's it's it often manifests more as an identity than a theology. It can be a theology, it's yep. actually a variety of theologies, but um, it is most powerful as like this singular identity. And it kind of had this political, it was like a political force that was pulling from this variety of different theological um, spectrums. That having been said, I, I wrote a story recently about Turning Point Faith and this, yeah. this conservative activist group that is intentionally targeting 
um, pastors and churches and framing a pivot into this kind of conservative rhetoric from the pulpit as not only like a theological good, but as a way to grow their church. And in at least one of the places I visited, it it seemed to be it seemed to be visibly true. And we have evidence that it's true with some of these other churches as well. And I, I gotta tell you, you know, I went to this event in Phoenix and there was, you know, praise and worship music. There was effectively an altar call, but surrounding every piece of that were explicit political um um rhetoric around, you know, talking points of the culture wars you know the the lead guy singing had an uncanceled shirt on was the logo on his shirt um right before the altar call one of the church pastors said that they you know that they hoped god made arizona a christian state which has been one of the expressed goals of the pastor at that church and then right after that charlie kirk the head of turning point usa this prominent conservative activist walks up and starts talking about tucker carlson and then plays you know this clip of tucker carlson the first video tucker carlson put out after he got um uh, you know left fox news or was fired for fox news and um and and Charlie Kirk compared his rhetoric to Christianity itself. And I just point that out to say that I'm not sure that that's that has always been true at different kinds of small churches and different kinds of churches in the country. But it's interesting to me. That these are larger churches that are investing in this project now as a way to grow their churches and seeing it as a theological good in a way that while the religious right has often played in those spaces. And to be fair, politics, as my book points out, is not simply the purview of conservative Christians like progressives, a variety of faiths and spiritualities also participate in this, but in a way that that Christian nationalism in particular seems to not just be a way to organize different kinds of faiths, but also being articulated as a form of faith in churches has been a, a fascinating thing to watch, particularly as Turning Point and similar organizations seem to be interested in getting other churches to take a similar road between now and 2024. And that's scary because wow. well, you know there's... those are the same sorts of churches that that say that growth is evidence of of God working in the church. And if and if we're already seeing like these are uniting ideas that are effective and do bring people together, we can expect that these churches will grow by trying to engage people with these methods. And then they'll look at that growth and they'll be like, all right, I guess this is what God really wants us to be doing. And you know, it's 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 an endless cycle. So um that's um terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> again, again, things are terrifying. Uh but there's We're, also good things in this country. Dave, could you say yes. something to make me um, not end up in the fetal position after? Yes. This? <laughs> well, I think uh, I think Jack's book is a a good reason for hope, even if people find themselves being non-religious now, because I think the the focus is on different issues that people can come together, even with theological disagreement, in order to make the country better and even the world better. So. And there are issues that we could probably talk forever on. Uh, Jack goes into immigration in the book, climate change, which, by the way, we would love to have somebody come on and talk to us about climate change. That's one thing we haven't done yet. The evangelical response to, you know, environmental catastrophe and mm -hmm. how that's happened in the past. That's a, that's a fascinating issue, uh, the future of faith. But, uh, yeah, there's lots of stuff if everyone wants to go check out Jack's book. American Prophets, the Religious Roots of Progressive Politics and the Ongoing Fight for the Soul of Our Country. Again, very hopeful for me. Really enjoyed reading it. Um, as a final question, Jack, I'm just curious, what was it like to go to Harvard and get a Master's of Divinity degree from Harvard University? Super weird. Um, it's... Uh... <laughs> 
I love my time at the Divinity School at Harvard. It is it is also one of the weirdest places in the world. Um, and and I mean that as both like an indictment, but primarily as a compliment. Um, it is. Here's the Wheaton of secular schools. <laughs> <laughs> I will hold on to that. Um, the I mean the the to your point, like it's an interesting place because like um, Harvard is very intentionally multi faith, so there's like a lot of different religious traditions in any of your classes, but they. But but that might be the case while you're discussing, you know, John Calvin, right? So you'll be discussing John Calvin and get a myriad of different views on it from a variety of faiths. Um, and and I think that, you know, that I, I feel really, you know, lucky to have been able to kind of have that education because for as a as a um religion reporter, you know, I cover all of a wide variety of faiths and and going to school there while I was still in, you know, my tradition. Um, uh, you know, and I come from it from a specific tradition. I was still able to learn about a confluence of them all at the same time. Um, I I had a lot of fun there, and um, I I don't miss the cold at all. As a as a kid from South Carolina, uh, it is frighteningly cold. But I do desperately miss one uh, unsung uh fantastic thing about Boston in general is that they have the, like some of the best froyo places in the country. And uh, despite the fact that it's like two degrees outside, you can find some good froyo, uh, no matter what. As a as a starving grad student, um, so uh, yeah, no, it was it's a Definitely it's a I recommend Divinity School to anyone um, who can who can who can swing it. It's a uh, it's a fun time. Very cool. Uh, where can our audience find you if they want to engage with your work and and follow you around on social media? So uh, I am uh, at Jack M Jenkins on Twitter. Um, I am also on Mastodon t these days. Um, also at Jack M Jenkins on Mastodon. Although I'm saying that out loud and trying to remember the specific, yeah. Jack M. Jenkins at Mastodon.online. That is the specific, uh, what are they called? Instance? All these, Instance. All these different servers. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I also um, have an account I haven't used there. There you go. Um, <laughs> and uh, if anyone's got a Blue Sky invite, feel free to send me one. Um, and and my, I have a website, uh, jackjenkins.me. And you can find all my reporting at uh, religionnews.com, um, you know, the hub of religion news service. So. Very well, cool. Thank you so, thank much. You so it's, much. It's it's really been been a pleasure. Love the book. Uh, I love reading your pieces. You seem like you've gotten a lot of frequent flyer miles recently. Uh, so I hope you use that for something fun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, th thank you for all that you do. It's been a pleasure. Thank you all so much. I really and... appreciate you having me. Well, Dave, Jack, Jack Jenkins. And uh, I was thinking of Fight Club, but Jack knows. I forget all those sayings. So that was that was over twenty years ago when that David Fincher film came out. Yes, I I am Jack's. There we Richard go. Spleen or whatever. I am I am Jack's total <laughs> contempt. Yes. Uh, there we go. Yeah, I have. I have a photo album on a bookshelf that I put together around that time of like high school photos and stuff like that, and it it says like. I am I am Jack's photo album or something like that in homage to that. Yeah. 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 I have yeah. not revisited that movie probably probably in like 20 years. And I, I have Did you heard read the from, book ever. No. Oh, OK. I've heard from various people that it hasn't aged too well. I don't mm -hmm. know. I don't know. I've, but, I haven't revisited it either. I would I would expect it to hold up, you know, when looking at it 
through what it was actually trying to do, but mm -hmm. it has so much baggage um, because of the misinterpretations and the yes the way it has held up for some segments of the population. Um, uh, that's not Pinterest's fault. Yeah, I mean it's it's just wild how many times I hear people call somebody a snowflake, and I just think that's from, that's from Fight Club. <laughs> like that's it's <laughs> weird. Let's that see. was a lot of fun. That was fun. American Prophets. I I like Jack. He was uh, man, super knowledgeable. All, yeah. all right off the top of his head, you can you know he knows his stuff. He's a he's a religion reporter. Yeah, you know there's there's a reason. It's it's clear why he's good at what he does. Um, yeah, that was that was really cool. And so it's it's looking like we have one more episode before doing a summer break. Um, but we do expect to at least. Uh, be getting together July 29th. Yes. In Bremerton at the Tracyton Theater to see 90 Pound Wuss. Uh, and some other openers. Yeah. You know, some punk bands. Uh, punk rock. You know, you know with, uh, with our, with our buddy Jeff, Jeff Betger, Jeff Suffering, who was, who was on the show not too long ago, uh, talking about 90 Pound Wuss and all that. So that, should be fun. We recently went to a baseball game as well. Yes, that was containers. not open to 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 podcast listeners, um, <laughs> but we did do that. There's a picture was... of us floating around the interwebs out there. Yeah, yeah, and Wonder of Wonders, Mariners won. That yes. was cool. They are I mean, losing right now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm not shocked. Yeah, no, we barely eked out a win when we should have one convincingly but it was still Absolutely. a really fun game um so yeah what anything else what else we got coming up barbie oh. tickets are on sale uh, okay think, yeah I think i'm gonna reserve some for my family tonight you know what's annoying about i i i am definitely i'm looking forward to seeing barbie i don't like how the media is pitting barbie against oppenheimer like we can't see two movies in the same weekend i mean i can't because i have a family and i have kids but i mean theoretically people can see both movies in the same weekend yeah i mean but you know people have their priorities some people are gonna like nolan some people as an increasingly anti-nolan person i kind of enjoy there being a bit of a fight between them. <laughs> okay so you're and the I, one i are the barbie, one instigating the conflict i want barbie to win convincingly like the mariners um i think it will i and, I and here's so why barbie is well, well first of all i mean it's people are going to see it because it's a huge brand name greta gerwig is going to draw in the 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 cinema fans such as us uh, because she's really good. Lady Bird is a masterpiece, if anybody out there has not seen it, her her film from five or six years ago. And I also, yeah, I think just the tone of it is going to draw people in. But also Oppenheimer is three hours long, okay? Barbie's not going to be that long. So I think that's another, you know, point in Barbie's favor. So I, I think it's going to be successful. I think the kids are interested in, in Barbie. My 13-year-old son is considering taking friends to Barbie for his birthday party. Whoa. <laughs> wow, that's different. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's pretty rad. When when I was 13, I probably would have been really insecure if this film would have come out then. And I 
probably would have not went to see it in the effort of trying to be cool with friends. So I think that shows, you know, cultural change. So he'll he'll be turning 14. I don't remember what I did for my 14th birthday, but I know that for my 13th birthday, I made all my friends go see Mr. Holland's Opus. Oh, wow. <laughs> starring Richard Dreyfuss, okay. um, which I was very sincere uh, about. In, in choosing that movie, I should look up what other movies came out on that day. Um, it would to, be to see what you bypassed to see what I the Richard Drivers yeah. starring vehicle. We could have gone to see Down Periscope, Kelsey Grammer, I believe. Rumble in the Bronx, Ooh. Jackie Chan. That would have been great. Wow, yeah. Broken Arrow, no Happy Gilmore. Oh yeah, okay. Muppet Treasure Island. Oh, yeah. Dead Man Walking. That's that's a great film. Sense and Sensibility. Black Sheep. Braveheart. You guys, I was a 13-year-old evangelical who chose Mr. Holland's Opus over Braveheart. That was probably a prophetic sign that you were eventually going to leave evangelicalism. Or they would kick you out. They'd probably kick you out these days. Oh, okay. It was that was it had been out for forty one weeks at that point, apparently. So that just shows you the (laughs) the staying powder power of that. Um Toy Story had been out for fifteen weeks already. I know I already saw that. So but yeah, as far as like yeah, up close and personal, I don't even remember what that is. That was that was the top moneymaker that week. And yet I looked at this and I said, let's go see Mr. Holland's Opus, which had been out for 10 (laughs) weeks at that point um, for my birthday. Nice. What? Love it. I was a weird kid, Dave. Uh, You were all right, man. You were all right. Thank you. That means a lot. (laughs) Could you end the episode? I'm going to end this thing. Okay. This has been another episode of Veterans of Culture Wars. Wherever you get your podcast, please leave us a rating and a review as that helps others find our show. We do have a Patreon if you want to support our show. Both Zach and I have day jobs, but you can sign up for as little as $1 a month. You can help us as we work really hard to book guests and read books and give you interviews, conversations. Hopefully you guys all enjoy. You can look us up on Twitter for now, at DCWPod. I am at Dave J. Lester. Zach is at Muzak, M-U-Z-A-C-H. And please go to his website, muzak.bandcamp.com, to order a vinyl record or two and hear some of his other music. Thanks again for coming on down to the VCW. And remember, as always, the podcast is free. But you still need to tithe 10%. <laughs>